Christopher Robin's healthy dose of nostalgia frames a story that explores how a change of perspective can change everything. Are you just watching episode 84, Christopher Robin? Welcome to the podcast that shares critical thinking for the entertained Christian. I'm E. Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And we decided to do something a little bit, um, you know, quieter and more kid-friendly. Closer to normal. Closer to normal. <laughs> Family-friendly, not superheroes, not science fiction, a little bit fantasy. But it's... um. It's more of like a walk down nostalgia lane. <laughs> yeah. It really is, isn't it? Yeah. Though, to be honest, I don't think I really hung out that much with Winnie the Pooh when I was a child. I don't think that it was... I mean, I knew who Winnie the Pooh was, and I knew... But I don't think that I spent a lot of time, you know, wandering around in the uh, Hundred Acre Wood <laughs> with all of the characters. So, I mean, I, I knew who they were, but I don't know that I ever actually read any of the stories. Let's put it that way. I read the books, but I was very young. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, it may just have been the one book, like bedtime story type stuff, when I was yeah. probably even sub-grade school age, before school. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I kind of wanted to see Goodbye, Christopher Robin last year, and I never got around to seeing it. I may check it out of the library and watch it at some point. I had forgotten um, about that movie. Yeah, and I I think I completely missed it coming out or something, but I remember the build-up to it. I wanted to see it. And so this movie, Christopher Robin, I guess when I saw it was in theaters, somehow I thought it was the same movie. It isn't the same movie, <laughs> but it's a very uh, fun look at a grown-up Christopher Robin. The um, person I went to the movie with said that they were hoping it would be something in the vein of of Saving Mr. Banks, which is a movie that I don't believe I've ever seen I have seen Saving Mr. I don't think it's called Saving Mr. Banks, though, is it? It's the story of Mary Poppins, bringing Mary Poppins to screen, right? I haven't seen the movie, so I don't know how much this one was like it, but... It it definitely had the same feel. Yeah. Uh, I, I, could, I could get behind that statement. Yeah, she said that she really appreciated it. So going into it with with expectations like that, she was happy. And, you know, it had the same nostalgic feeling. Mm-hmm. It brought in the people who remembered Mary, Mary Poppins and the young children who might appreciate Mary Poppins. But I think, uh, as with Christopher Robin, I think it missed the, you know, the coveted Target audience. 18 to 35 <laughs> demographic. <laughs> yeah. People who weren't exposed to Winnie the Pooh when they were growing up. And have no adult who would drag them to the theater now. Yeah. And it, and it missed its target audience for children as well. I mean, it was rated PG, but I feel like it was not really a kid's movie. And not because the content wasn't kid-friendly. It was very kid-friendly. I think it was aimed at an older audience because of the nostalgia and the pace of the movie. It was yeah. not a fast-moving happy movie it was actually kind of slow starting and a little dreary so it's not something that kids are going to follow very well yeah this was a deeper movie than most children um could appreciate and i honestly 
you know, because the deepness of the movie was centered around the responsibilities of the difference between being an adult and being a imaginative child. Mm-hmm. I think most uh, older kids, you know, uh, 13 through 18, I think they would not appreciate it at all. I yeah. might, I, you know, I might be wrong. Yeah. I mean, there's aspects of it that they would find fun, but I think the parts that we're talking to children would be too young for them. And the parts that are talking to adults would be too old for them. So it definitely is missing a, a range there. Yeah. And because it is, it is talking about once you get old and have the responsibilities of, of being an adult on your shoulders, you lose touch with your childhood. And I, I think that that was basically the main theme of the movie. And that, like you said, that doesn't really speak to older children. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's a pretty rare child who would be able to uh, really latch on to the, that concept. And even mm-hmm. then, I would think it would be because they are very observant and uh, mm-hmm. empathetic to uh, to the adults around them more than experience on their part. I thought that a, a point I read in your notes about how the different characters kind of line up with um, what was going on in Riley's head yeah. in Inside Out. Uh, I thought that was a really interesting observation because when you when you pull together, you know, Piglet and Eeyore's kind of sadness and Piglet is, is fear and so so they are a little bit a, a little uh, very much like inside out in that aspect and so i think when when you actually have the stuffed animals on screen i think that there is aspects of the story that the kids would be entertained by is yeah. they just don't have enough screen time most of them don't even come in until towards the end of the movie yeah the the personalities of the the filmmakers were very true to the personalities of the the inhabitants of the Hundred Acre Wood. Mm-hmm. Um, it, I was sitting there going, "That is definitely something that uh, that Pooh would say, or definitely something that that uh, Rabbit would do." You know, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And frankly, the the quality of animation, even still astounds me Mm -hmm. i had no i no problem at all yeah they really look like stuffed animals coming alive yeah it's i didn't even feel like i had to suspend my disbelief because there was no disbelief they were up on the Mm -hmm. screen and it made perfect (laughs) sense to me (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah and i kept thinking they they really do look like real stuffed animals that are moving and talking (laughs) and you know i was I don't know what it was about Pooh's nose. Uh, it, it, you know what it was? I had a Winnie the Pooh when I was growing up, a, a uh-huh. little stuffed one, and he had a hard plastic nose, a shiny, oh. you know, black plastic nose. And, uh-huh. and, the, and he had a yarn nose. Yeah. Yeah. Not long into the movie, I noticed that his nose was yarn, and uh, <laughs> some, for some reason, I became <laughs> fixated on it. <laughs> and I, I I noticed that in the animation you could easily make out each individual, you know, thread of yarn on the close-ups. It just the the attention to detail and the animation, and you could almost feel like you had to reach out and touch them. The way the technology has improved 
allowing this level of interaction. Yeah, in live action and animation mix. Yeah, yeah. and and that's that actually was the other part of it, I think. Hollywood has gotten so much better since, say, Who Framed Roger Rabbit at live action people interacting with uh, mm-hmm. CGI characters. Mm-hmm. At no time did I feel like one of the live action actors was not looking at the right place or interacting the right way. It all felt cohesive. Right. I saw a video where they were talking about to the actors about, you know, filming this movie. And they they, they all agreed that it wasn't hard for them at all because they they would have the stuffed animal filling the spot <laughs> and then they would animate it later. And so they were also familiar with the the personalities and what, you know, the characters would say that they had no problem whatsoever imagining a talking poo you know (laughs) so i guess it was part of it is the nostalgia factor was that the these were not made up characters for just this movie they were characters that the actors had known and loved their whole lives yeah very easy to invest in Mm -hmm. right i you know that level of animation makes me want to get the dvd just for the extras so i can see the making ofs (laughs) yeah it'll be cool yeah. But before we get too far into this, I do want to mention the music. Um, it is by Jeff Zanelli and John Brian, two guys that I've never heard of before. And we've never mentioned before. Yay! Yay! It's a Disney movie not done by the Italian uh, F, uh, Iraqi guy. <laughs> we can never say his name. Uh, though I think Zanelli is Italian. So. <laughs> Uh-oh. <laughs> Watch, I'll look him up and he'll be like Chinese. <laughs> I thought that the score was very, I wouldn't say unimpressive, but it just, it didn't stand out, which is, like I have said many times, is a good thing. It means that it it blended seamlessly with the movie and you didn't notice the music, but it added atmosphere and to all the scenes. Mm -hmm. And so I'm just going to play a little bit of it here of one of the more active parts of the movie for you to listen to. So, yeah, I I thought the music blended, and that's about all I can say. I mean, it's not something I'm going to buy and listen to for fun, but it it worked well for the movie. Yeah, it it wasn't standout, but... It didn't stand out as bad. It didn't stand out as too good either. And it fit. It It really did. It it flowed with the, you know, the the happy and sad memory mix that Mm -hmm. made up this movie. I felt like it fit the era well, because... We're not talking about a modern day movie. We're talking about a movie that's portraying time after, was it World War One? Two. Two. Yeah, it's, I, two. I had to give some thought to that, but I basically I went off the model of cars they were driving. Mm, yeah, that makes sense. The, the other thing that I really appreciated in this movie was the use of color, which I think is a significant thing in all of the the Pooh storybooks and and, mm-hmm. and illustrations is, you know, how dominant the color red is and how the colors are all very bright monochromatic. Yeah. Uh, the red balloon was, was 
I looked up the red balloon because it was such a prominent oh. part of the movie. Yeah. I was curious to see where it fit in, in you know, the brand of Pooh. Mm-hmm. And uh, I guess they're, they, they said in some of the stories, the balloon was almost its own character. Yeah. So it, I, I thought that that was very well done. And the little details like Eeyore missing his tail and having to put it back on again. It was always a thing that was going on in the Pooh stories. Yeah, it, um, Christopher Robin getting stuck, getting out of the, uh, getting out of the tree, and uh, I don't know mm-hmm. if you meant you noticed. He said, "Now I know how it feels," because mm-hmm. you know there's a staple in the Pooh stories is Pooh not being able to get out of his uh, his hole because he gets stuck because he ate too yeah. much honey. Yeah, and. The honey plays, the honey is almost a character <laughs> in this movie, too. Of course, it usually is with Pooh, because he's always needs his honey. And uh, but we could talk about that later. Those are just some details that, you know, popped out at me that were very important. And the use of color was definitely, I thought, because they're living in a very drab post-war world, and everything's gray. And so when you start introducing those those spots of color, they really stand out. And yeah, it's I, the fact that they were living in this in this post-war world, I think, uh, was craftily um, integrated, uh, including um, something I'll, I'll talk about in a little bit where uh, Christopher Robin in his work is responsible for ensuring that people who left their job to uh, take care of the war effort stayed employed mm-hmm. with um Winslow? Is that the name of the company? I don't remember. The luggage company? Yeah, anyway. It was a luggage company. So he's he's responsible for people that they promised they would employ. Mm-hmm. And uh I like how they kept the shadow of the war just past, you know, just over the horizon, just uh just behind the shoulder, uh, in such a way that it made it easy to sympathize with the characters. Mm-hmm. One thing I didn't like, I don't want to say it's the only thing I didn't like, but it's the only thing that really stood out to me as as a specific thing, was that uh, there's this subplot, and I even hesitate to call it that, where Christopher <laughs> Robin's next door neighbor, yeah, distraction, that's exactly what it was, <laughs> is constantly pestering him for the first third of the movie about when they're going to get together for their gin rummy game. And he was a caricature of a neighbor, not a real neighbor, you know? Yeah, I think it's kind of like that neighbor who's wanting to spend time with you and you're always putting them off and making excuses. And uh, I think at some point Christopher Robin must have made some excuse to him and it got stuck in his head. So it was always that we're going to play that gin rummy game kind of thing. Yeah. So, I mean, I understand the use of the character, but I don't know what his purpose was in the movie and he's kind of a throwaway a distraction yeah the only thing i can think of is that they needed a a way to drive christopher robin out out into the park across the street from his townhouse Mm. and hiding out yeah to hide from the neighbor and which gave that that hole when he finds poo the first time so i don't I don't know. Yeah, it seems like a, a sort of long setup to give him an excuse to go hide. I, yeah, I, but then I, he drops him after that. Yeah, I, I feel really like seen... I feel like there was supposed to be more to him. 
and <laughs> they they had to leave it on the cutting room floor. It may have been, I don't know. Like he had something to do with the end. I don't know. But yeah, it, he seemed like more of a distraction than anything else. Yeah. Um, you had a comment in yours about um, uh, in the stories, Christopher Robin's father is always absent. I had read that. Somewhere. I don't remember his mother much in the stories either. I, it was always just Christopher Robin and the denizens of the Hundred Acre Woods. Um, mm-hmm. Did you have something specific in mind there? Well, it was just that I had been reading up on the Red Balloon and I had noticed um, some articles that were talking about the fact that there are a lot of stories that have the the mother and the nanny in them, but the father's never mentioned. And so I don't, as having not read the Winnie the Pooh stories myself, I can't say that for sure. I was just something I dug up when I was researching the Red Balloon. And the father is never mentioned. It's like the fatherless Christopher Robin kind of thing. Yeah. And yet at the beginning of this movie where they're showing the chapters of Christopher Robin's life, you see his father, you know, because his father is taking him to school Mm -hmm. in a very absent kind of way. But, yeah, I thought that was interesting that our whole discussion is going to probably hinge quite a bit on a father and child relationship because that's, you know, a predominant theme of this movie. And the fact that Christopher Robin himself, his father's never mentioned in the stories. Before we get to that, I I wanted to uh, to mention the only review that I read before going to see it was this uh, article in Christianity Today. It was part review and part discussion on nostalgia mm-hmm. and its use, not only in Christopher Robin, but in Hollywood in a more general sense, and how... Christians should be approaching it. And basically, uh, I'll put the the link to the article in the show notes, but it comes down to uh, as long as you keep it in perspective, it's good. Mm -hmm. Just like anything. (laughs) But as soon as you idolize it, it's bad. Yeah. But it did bring to mind to me how much of the fare that we're seeing, and frankly, that that we're reviewing here on uh, Are You Just Watching?, in the last mm-hmm. year or two, has been derivative, either a sequel or a reboot or a reimagining. <laughs> it just yeah. seems like there's there's less and less original content. Original content, yeah, um, yeah. Like you know that the father son story in Pursuit of Happiness, which I think was the first movie I did with you, right? It is, yes. Um, was it felt original even though it touched on many of the same themes that we're going to be discussing today Mm -hmm. but the parent-child interaction that we're discussing today while well done felt derivative to me and Mm -hmm. really seemed to be lacking original content and I'm, i'm wondering if it's just my perception or is it indicative of a larger trend you know in in mass media i don't know what's going on uh, maybe it's the Marvel think, effect. Yeah, it could be the Marvel effect. It could be the. I think maybe a lot of Hollywood studios are trying to to you know take a fast track to success. Mm-hmm. And whenever you chase something original, there's that element of risk as to whether mm-hmm. the, it's going to fit the market and whether people are going to enjoy it. And so I don't I don't know. Maybe they're just not willing to take the risk on original stuff. Because it is risky. You don't know if 
you know, you get a feel for your market. And like you said, when we started this is like, there is that target of the 18 to, you know, 34 or whatever, 434 or whatever it is. And they've got it twisted into their head. What will make that market come and buy popcorn and sit for two hours? (laughs) I don't know. Uh, I mean, there probably have been some original movies that have come out that we've maybe missed or that were rated R. Yeah. I thought Arrival was pretty original, and we just did that one yeah. um, earlier this year. There's stuff out there. It's just, it probably, they're a little scared of, you know, what how the market will accept it and what the reviews are going to be. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I've mentioned on the podcast before that uh, I host trivia two nights a week, and one of the things I have to mm-hmm. do is select music to play in between the songs. And and for the songs between the questions, I always do theme songs, but three times during each show I do music from the, the current music charts. And recently, of the top 50 songs on the top 100 chart, 47 of the top 50 were flagged explicit. Yeah. That could be the other thing is that stuff's, you know, rated in such a way that we can't watch it. Yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> I think it. maybe the original yeah. movies, like you said, are uh, achieving that, that higher rating that's outside of our fare. Yeah. It's a shame. Yeah. yeah, it is. Why can't they come up with original stories that, that don't have... Uh, cussing and rampant sex and everything that's another thing you know my my observation that they're concerned about you know hitting their market their target market and you know what kind of reviews they're getting the explicit nature of our culture i think a lot of times they throw that stuff in in order to reach the audience it's a gimmick it's like they may not watch this for the story but you know they might watch it for this yeah yeah so I don't know. I it, it would be an interesting study to find out what's driving the whole nostalgia reboot and all that kind of stuff. Because we've rebooted Star Trek. We've rebooted Star Wars. We've got another Mary Poppins movie coming out. Yeah. Disney's really jumping on that bandwagon. Yeah. Live action of all the all the animated films all, that they're doing. Mm-hmm. All their classic animated films are coming mm-hmm. out in live action. It's definitely uh, a trend. So we'll see where it, where it carries us. Oh, you know what the good book says in Ecclesiastes one nine. <laughs> what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. <laughs> nope. I love Ecclesiastes. <laughs> Isn't there a Shakespeare quote like that? It's uh, every story. It's probably not Shakespeare. Has been told. Yeah, yeah. every story has been told. Yeah, probably. Probably apocryphal or well, proverb of some type. <laughs> well, you know, that's a great tie-in because the first thing that I want to talk about for Christopher Robin, and, you know, we've kind of been talking in general, so from now on we'll probably be hitting spoilers if oh, you yeah. haven't seen the movie yet. <laughs> I forgot about that part. <laughs> if you haven't seen the movie yet and you don't want anything spoiled, this would probably be a good time to stop listening, go see the movie, and then come back. Mm-hmm. If you don't care, if you don't worry about being spoiled, um, keep listening because we probably won't spoil the movie too bad. Oh, and if you do pause here and go watch the movie, would you give me some popcorn? <laughs> but tying in the whole, there's no, no new stories. Mm-hmm. 
this whole setup for Christopher Robin is storybook style. And I, I thought that was really beautifully framed Yeah, because we start out the movie with a very young Christopher Robin saying goodbye to his friends in the hundred acre wood because he is being sent off to boarding school. And after he's dropped off at the school, the movie skips forward by turning pages in a in a book showing well and this is the chapter of the life where he went to school and this is the chapter of life when his father died and this is the chapter of life when he goes to war when he gets married when he has a kid and so they're like skipping through his life like they're turning pages in a book Mm -hmm. and and i thought that was beautifully done it's slow and the kids probably won't follow it but it was beautifully done and i i really appreciated that an appropriate frame for the story itself mm -hmm. But what was interesting about these chapters of Christopher Robin's life is that we're seeing his joy and his innocence of his childhood stripped away in one chapter at a time. Mm -hmm. You know, you start out in the happy hundred acre wood where it's not really happy because they're saying goodbye and making promises to each other never to forget each other. And then we see him, him stripped away by one event after another. It's like uh, the first is being disciplined at school for uh, daydreaming mm-hmm. about Winnie the Pooh. And then we see, you know, his, the, the death of his father. Yeah. And... Actually, there's a, there's a little bit right there. Uh, there's mm-hmm. a scene at the wake where, mm-hmm. um, and, and you know, it's such a, it's such a stereotypical scene when you just discuss it, that he's sitting on the stairs at the wake and, one of the old women of the neighborhood or maybe a, a family member comes up and says, you're the man of the house now. Mm-hmm. But the way they did it really uh, spoke to the artistry they were putting into it and, and uh, mm-hmm. loaded it with emotion more so than than I can give it credit for in this discussion. Yeah. But it, like you're saying, it, it when with the delivery of that line, it stripped, an, stripped away another – a layer of innocence piece yeah. of what made Christopher Robin the uh, the master of the hundred acre wood. Yeah, and then we see him get married, and you know the responsibility of family, and the going away to war, and it's just that with each turn of the page, it's like you're taking him further down, you know, into into bleak despair, and he's basically being crushed by life, and it seems like as we're going through the movie that he's got a life that he's lost all purpose or joy. And it made me think of, you know, just the, and we've talked about this. It was one of our, the main things we talked about when we went, did the inside out movie was what is happiness? What is joy? Mm -hmm. And I think that joy comes from, at least from a Christian heart, it comes from a godly perspective on life and a purpose for living. And because Christopher Robin's purpose was stripped away by all of these, you know, heavy things going on in his life, it brought up a few pieces of scripture for me. And one of them is Proverbs seventeen twenty two: a joyful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. And I think that that is a very, a, that proverb really fits this movie because it starts out with him with a crushed spirit. And, and that's, Everything in his life is being dictated to by how his spirit has been crushed yeah, by all of this. You're right. It could almost be a life. tagline for the movie, couldn't it? <laughs> yeah. But the joy of a childhood, the innocence of a childhood that he recaptures in this movie is where the joy comes from. And it, it gives him a new perspective on life. And so joy heals that and he's lost his joy. Mm-hmm. And then... 
near the end of Ecclesiastes, which I've already said is one of my, <laughs> one of my favorite books. Ecclesiastes eight fourteen through 15 says, There is vanity that takes place on earth, that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity, and I commend joy. For man has nothing better under the sun but to eat, drink, and be joyful, for this will go with him in his toil through the days of his life that God has given him under the sun. So this is one of those oxymorons, this conflict that is in in scripture that people who live righteous lives can have the worst things happen to them and then you have these wicked people who are wealthy and famous and you know all you know all the good things in life are coming to them and mm -hmm. and it's a paradox that that it's hard to deal with sometimes and like maybe the guy who goes and plays golf while all of his employees are working or being worried about losing their jobs yeah. <laughs> You know, the, the writer of Ecclesiastes, uh, King Solomon says, but I commend to you joy because that's what makes all of that worthwhile is living in a state of joy. And then in Galatians five twenty two through 23, bringing this up into the mm -hmm. New Testament, that the fruit of the spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such things. There is no law. So this is that picture of what the spirit does to Christians, because it's easy to get lost when you're getting, you know, heavy things piled on you on top of, of it all. And we all have heavy things in our lives. And, and I think I brought this up a little bit when we were talking ab about the red pill in our last two episodes, that if you bring a perspective of joy to the hard things in your life, then you don't let them push you down and you can get past those with purpose and meaning, regardless of the circumstances that are in your life. That's just kind of a, a real brief overview of the way they portray Christopher Robin in this movie and doesn't necessarily go delve into what we want to talk about later. But I wanted to point that out from the get go that what's lacking in his life is joy. He's lost the innocence of childhood and he doesn't have a purpose to replace it with. Yeah. And one other little quick thing that I noticed, and I don't know really how it fits in our discussion, but did you notice that Pooh kind of just wakes up when the, the honey touches his picture? And I almost got the feeling that this all this time that has passed in Christopher Robin's life, that all of the characters went to sleep. And so, and that's the reason why Pooh can't find his friends, because everybody is missing, because it's part of Christopher Robin's missing childhood. And so Pooh's the first one that wakes up and the other ones haven't woken up yet. And the other ones don't appear. The Hundred Acre Wood is empty when he and Pooh get back to it. And they don't appear until he loses Pooh and he starts looking for Pooh. And then the others appear. Yeah, they're sort of parceled in, uh, almost like their own introductions. Mm -hmm. uh, I just kind of felt like that that was an indication of awakening going on inside of him. Like the Hundred Acre Wood was sleeping and it was as he was waking up, they were waking up. Yeah. If that makes any sense. It was kind of like almost a showing of progression in his character. I didn't notice while I was watching it, but I wonder if there was a correlation between Christopher Robin's mood as he was looking for Pooh and the characters that he encountered. You know, was he feeling pessimistic when he finally encountered Eeyore floating in the river or... Yeah, I think he'd kind of given up looking for Pooh. Yeah. And 
So, yeah, there might be some correlation to that, too. Gonna have to rewatch it now to find out. <laughs> yeah, it'll be a fun movie to watch again yeah. at some point. Well, the next thing that, you know, that kind of just goes into is speaking of perspective. I really felt like, like I said, he doesn't have any joy in his life. He's lost his perspective. And there was a scene where he's telling uh, his wife, Evelyn, that he can't go to the cottage with them for the weekend. Mm. And she says, you won't be coming to the cottage. And he says, it can't be helped. And she says, your life is happening now right in front of you. And that was, you know, it's like missing the forest for the trees. It's like he's missing the most important things in his life because he's lost the correct perspective on life. He doesn't have a purpose. He's just going through the motions and his job is important to him. And it's the, and he's, I guess, kind of putting the job in place of purpose because that's. It, it's and, like he's coasting from one responsibility to the other, just almost trying to keep his head above water. Yeah. And the weekend that he had planned with Evelyn and Maddie was almost like a life preserver for uh, for surviving in the workplace, as opposed to mm-hmm. the, the joy of spending time with family. Right. Which you're just connotating, you know, his keep his head above water when he jumps into the river after Eeyore. <laughs> finds out it's only knee deep but yeah i think that that that, that's all kind of goes together though it's it's another perspective thing it's like when he's going in after eeyore he's looking at the water as he did as a child you know that he's gonna have to jump into this Mm -hmm. raging river and it's just a trickling creek that he doesn't even reach his knees so there's a whole ton of perspective stuff in this movie that it's almost like they're hammering it but it's so skillfully done that you don't really notice it until you start thinking about it yeah but the say what you see game that Pooh plays when they're on the the train heading to the cottage <laughs> tree um tree dog. house clouds he's just very literal you know these are the things that i see and then when he and madeline are going back yeah to chase after christopher robin um with his case full of important papers they try to play the game again, and this time they have more of the group there. And so Eeyore goes first, and he says, I see disgrace and shame and humiliation. Piglet sees worry, anxiety, and fear. And Tigger sees speed, danger, and recklessness. <laughs> so it's, it's you get all these different perspectives based on you know their personality traits. And I just thought that was kind of funny. It, it struck me when I was watching the movie, but when I thought back on it you know from a, what what are why are we watching this movie what else is there it was just another one of those perspective things it's like there's so much in this movie that is all about perspective is like how you look at things mm-hmm. and this was just another one of them it, it really is a major theme in the movie isn't it i mean mm-hmm. uh, yeah the way that christopher robin looked at the hundred acre woods when he was a kid versus an adult and mm-hmm. even the way madeline sees her father now you know, when Evelyn says, did I ever tell you about your father when he was a kid? And, and Madeline says, uh, are you sure he ever was one? Yeah. And it's amazingly enough turns out to be the climax of the movie, too, that the whole idea of perspective, looking at a problem from a different different point of view, provides a solution. Mm-hmm. And that was the climax of the movie. You know, it's like we're going to fix this problem that, you know, the company isn't making enough money by changing the market instead of getting rid of the employees. 
And I, I think that was, you know, it's like, let's, let's quit looking at this. Let's look outside the box for the solution instead of looking inside yeah. the box for the solution. And, and I think that that was a really big deal. But then there's also this slight shift of when they realize Madeline is missing. Evelyn comes into town looking because Madeline has run away, you know, yeah. and gone on an expedition. Yeah, and she comes into the city and tells, and interrupts the meeting to tell Christopher Robin that Madeline's missing. And then he realizes that his case of important things are, his daughter's a lot more important. And so I feel like, you know, this this whole perspective shift through the whole movie was intentionally done. Yeah, I agree. They were like showing you how important perspective is and how you look at things and and then it turns out to be such an important climax. Two tertiarily related comments there. Yeah. First, uh, the way that Maddie, for all intents and purposes, a 10-year-old girl, handles herself and goes into, uh, gets on the train, handles the mass transportation system in London, and <laughs> uh, does everything, reminded me of, we jokingly call it the good old days, but when you and I were, were much younger, when we were grade school, our parents were much more permissive in what we were and weren't allowed to do as far as ranging far afield and staying out late and, and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, playing until mom calls me in for dinner, yeah, you know, and she has I, no idea where I am in the neighborhood. I, I, as a kindergartner, once or twice a week, would not be uncommon for me to walk from our house to my grandparents' house a mile and a half away. <laughs> uh, yeah. On the other side of what was a huge town to a six-year-old. Yeah, it's interesting that they, they say now that a lot of the problems with the millennials are the helicopter parenting. Yeah. You know, it's like this holding your child so close and making sure they have everything they need, you know, and they never have to think for themselves. They never have to do for themselves. Everything is right there. So, yeah, she definitely exhibits a level of maturity that our 16-year-olds these days don't have. That's for sure. (laughs) (laughs) Um, uh, The other thing was the only time in the movie that I had trouble suspending my disbelief was that the entire solution would be that Winslow's luggage would start giving paid vacation to their thousands of employees. I don't care how big the company is. They are not going to make a dent in their fiscal economy by giving paid vacation to their thousands of employees. No, that's just not what I think they were doing. I think they were encouraging other companies. Starting social change. Yeah, starting social change by making their luggage affordable for the middle and lower classes uh. because they were they were producing luggage that was only available and affordable by the upper classes and so it should be his solution was to create a market for a cheaper and ease and more mass-produced item yeah so that was the solution okay yeah still oversimplified (laughs) yes well it had to be oversimplified because it's a kid's movie yeah and it was the last two minutes of the movie (laughs) yeah done very quickly yeah but yeah, that's that was to me. I felt like what the solution was was that he we they were looking at a very small targeted market, yeah. and his idea was let's turn it upside down and create a bigger market. Uh, back to the, the entire idea of looking at it differently. Right. Exactly. Yeah. 
that really was, you know, like the paper floating around and he picks it up and it's upside down. The pyramid's upside down. So he sees the, you know, so it, it was all a perspective thing. Mm-hmm. The other thing was Eeyore, when doesn't recognize Christopher Robin, when he first sees him, he considers him a heffalump. And it takes quite a bit of convincing on the part of Christopher Robin to convince him that he's not a heffalump. And, and Pooh, when he first saw Christopher Robin, you know, says, you're a lot bigger he's like well i'm not a child anymore i'm an adult so there's this whole idea of your perspective changes as you get older you know not only are you getting bigger but and that leads into the next thing i want to discuss i'm gonna let you close this thing because i'm gonna get all (laughs) mine in early but the inevitability of growing up and as i just mentioned about the millennials We've got a new verb now in our culture called adulting. <laughs> and I thought it was so funny. Um, you start hearing even people my age oh, talking yeah. about I've used it. Uh, yeah, about adulting and how hard it I is. I don't want to adult today. And, yeah. <laughs> what, where that comes from is, you know, the idea of being responsible and doing the things that an adult does. And I think that in every one of us, my dad used to tell me, and he still tells me because <laughs> he's in his mid-70s. And he's like, I'm an 18-year-old trapped in an old man's body. And when we're growing old, we don't think of ourselves as old. We still think of ourselves as young and in old bodies, you know. It's that immortality of the human spirit. And so I don't think that age doesn't necessarily make an adult. mature. Maturity does. And I think a lot of times we don't teach the skills and knowledge that classify people as mature enough to be adults. And so we have a lot of really old kids basically running loose in our culture that that going back to my comment about the millennials, which let me paraphrase that. Not all millennials are irresponsible. um, I don't know about that. I I know a handful (laughs) that are actually quite responsible. It's my children, as you know, are all, uh, millennial aged and uh, it's a running joke in our house that uh, mm-hmm. whenever there's a problem with a uh, a kid on the TV screen that's the same age as my kids I'll just go millennials man I hate them <laughs> and you know it, it earns me the requisite dirty look and, and uh, mm-hmm. bump on the shoulder you, you name it sorry didn't mean yeah. <laughs> no, please I mean- continue well, that, that that's kind of my point is, is that we have a, a generation now that are reaching adulthood. They don't act like adults that don't seem to know how to be adults. But yet we're seeing in a level of maturity in the children in Christopher Robin that even the the original Christopher, Christopher Robin stories, Christopher Robin as a boy was the mature character. Yeah. And in, in that he was being the the guiding mentor of a group of basically toddlers, toddler mentalities. Mm. And it's just interesting to me that we see a level of maturity in him as a child and in his daughter, because he expects his daughter to be a little adult. It's the way he treats her. That there is this idea that maturity is not something that you just automatically have an adult. And experiences age you quicker than years do. Mm -hmm. And that's where, you know, some of the you know, Christopher Robin got old too fast because of the experiences of his life. They matured him too quickly. I think that ties back to uh, what we had mentioned before was how mm-hmm. much we we as children, you and I, were uh, allowed to experience on our own as as children. Yet with the helicopter parenting today, 
Mm-hmm. The the experiential uh, benefit just isn't there anymore. And when we yeah. take that even further and look at how Madeline uh, lived the you know the first ten years of her life dealing with a father who was away at what was uh, you know the war to end. Uh, no, World War One I, I think was the war to end all wars, but World War Two mm. uh, dealing with bombings. <laughs> It, mm-hmm. it, you know, nightly bombings and radio reports of, of deaths down the street. Mm-hmm. And then Christopher Robin growing up, he would have, he would have been growing up in just post, uh, World War One. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's just, I think maybe, uh, and I'm going to sound like an old fogey now. I think maybe, <laughs> uh, Part of the reason that we don't see more maturity in the younger generations right now is that uh, they just haven't had the the harder experiences. They've had it easier growing up. Now, that's just the way it is. And, and they've been shielded from a lot of hard things, yeah, too. Uh, it, it, it's not that hard things haven't happened, but they've been shielded right, from them. Right. I think God's plan is such that it will balance out. Mm-hmm. That those who have grown up in harder environments, uh, financially challenged, or those who deal with racism on a on a daily basis, uh, or live in environments where terrorists could literally roll into their town and kill people, their village. Um, mm-hmm. I think that we will see those people uh, rise up. You know, like Nelson Mandela and and uh, Desmond Tutu. Um, I hope that it works out that way, and I hope that they are God-fearing people who do. Well, one of the points that I wanted to to make in this was that as we dwell on what it means to become an adult and deal with the responsibility, our perspective as believers in approaching God, Jesus himself said that we were supposed to approach him as children. Mm -hmm. So there is a level of innocence and vulnerability that we have to exude they have to put ourselves back in that mindset in order to understand the gospel yeah. and and to accept the spirit and in matthew 18 2 through 4 it says and this is jesus and calling to him a child he put him in the midst of them and said truly i say to you unless you turn and become like children you will never enter the kingdom of heaven whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven that is so hard. I mean, it's it's like uh, we get so set in our ways as we get older. And, and I know I, for one, am finding myself very domineering. And, and when I think I'm right, I'm not going to let any anybody um, gainsay me. And I'm acting more like my dad every day. <laughs> but we have to let go of some of that. We have to be able to return ourselves mentally and spiritually to a state of childhood in which we turn to our father, our papa, and and ask him to make everything better in our lives because we can't do it ourselves. We have to realize that we aren't in control. And mm-hmm. and that's that's the state of children. They're never in control of their own lives. They're, there's always someone else that's, you know, pulling all the strings. That uh, ties uh, very heavily into, you know, um, I, I'm not going to read the whole thing, but... Uh, uh, the Sermon on the Mount and the, the Beatitudes, several of the Beatitudes, mm-hmm. um, uh, the pure in heart, uh, the meek, the hunger, those who hunger and thirst uh, are mm-hmm. all um, 
not unique to the childhood mind, but much more common in the childhood mind. And I think that Christ was reinforcing there uh, his comment uh, from Matthew. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Or actually the other way around, um, because the Matthew 18 came after the Beatitudes. Yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting that that we come at this, you know, this whole idea of perspective and, you know, we're going to probably, you're going to talk more about what that means in balancing work and family. Mm -hmm. But one of the points I wanted to make is that we should try really, really hard not to strip away the innocence and the imagination of our children, allow them to dream and allow them. I mean, like there, there was this horrific quote in there from the boss who was saying that, um, Dreams don't come for free. You have to work on them. Nothing comes from nothing. So children are natural dreamers and they think of impossible things. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, you can't support them in some degree instead of dashing their hopes and Mm -hmm. forcing them to grow up too soon. So just a reminder to us to help preserve the imagination and the dreams of our children yeah and we need to we need to reach for that uh that childhood mind ourselves but Mm -hmm. not from a a place of longing and nostalgia but from a place of remembering what it's like to be a child utterly trusting (laughs) and Mm -hmm. independent and dependent on god because that's what we Mm -hmm. are uh, it, it really mm-hmm. is just opening our eyes to the reality of the situation and uh, submitting to his will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but uh, it, I was able to uh, to sympathize, I think, much more with Christopher Robin uh, as an adult and the, the struggles that he faced because uh, he and I have been in so many situations, so many similar situations. I'm an army vet, and uh, I was in for the the first Gulf War, though I never saw combat or was deployed to a combat zone. Um, and you know, I've I've raised kids, and uh, I've been a manager at work with people uh, reporting to me and dependent upon me. And the the challenges that he was facing that that were portrayed in the movie uh, for the Christopher Robin character were all ones that that touched me uh, specifically. And mm-hmm. he took his responsibilities very seriously and and he should have. Uh, but I want uh, I want to stress that you know, when Hollywood portrays a character like that, we have to remember that, when we know while we know that we should be taking our responsibilities seriously we we need to keep in mind that there's a reason that we should be taking these responsibilities seriously mm-hmm. and it's not just because we're responsible but because we uh we answer to a higher power uh it's i know i've used it before because it's one of my favorite scriptures whatever you do do it from the heart as something done for the Lord and not for people, mm-hmm. knowing that you will receive the reward of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve mm-hmm. the Lord Christ. And, uh, you know, Christopher Robin, uh, he's responsible for his employees' jobs. When Winslow Jr. makes it clear that they're looking at cutting 20% of the workforce or 20% of the cost, which may or may not be 20% of the workforce, so all of that got me wondering, you know, what was the common faith in uh, in England at the time? And 
when we have missionaries come into the church, uh, they talk pretty frequently about the secularization of Europe. And mm-hmm. uh, I was looking at some figures in, in the 2011 census, 59.5%, almost 60% of respondents in the United Kingdom identified as Christians. Now, keep in mind, of course, that identifying as Christians doesn't mean that they're actually evangelical, Bible-believing Christians. I'm surprised it's that high. Yeah, I, I, that was, was I, I was actually yeah. <laughs> very surprised. Um, the, because their their percentage of how many people actually turned their churches are drying up and blowing away. Yeah, exactly. It, I it, mean, most of the churches in Europe have, are lucky if they have fifty members. I mean, they're just really, really tiny. It, the uh, it, I read an article. I think it was in Christianity Today as well. That for the first time in recorded history, the number of weddings in Scotland performed by secular humanists is outnumbering the number of weddings performed by uh, religious faith leaders. And as a Presbyterian, this is shocking to me because Scotland is the home of the Presbyterian denomination. Mm Mm-hmm. But even and across Europe, churches are being turned into nightclubs and mm-hmm. tattoo parlors, and uh, the same statistics suggest that in the time of the setting of Christopher Robin, it Christianity was even less popular. One thing I read suggested that around slightly less than thirty percent of the adult civilization in the United Kingdom in nineteen eighteen was uh, identifying as Christian. And I think these numbers are probably closer together uh, with the 1918 probably being a little higher and the 2011 probably being much lower due to the definitions of identifying Christian changing. Yeah, yeah. Um, But the point is, is, you know, Christopher Robin struggled to be responsible, but we need to remember when we're looking at it from a critically thinking Christian viewpoint, that the responsibility that we are urged to needs to keep in mind who we serve. Uh, And and frankly, that responsibility needs to play into how we raise our children as well. Uh, One of the struggles Christopher Robin faced was his relationship with Madeline. He clearly tried to be a good father. He was clueless. Yeah. (laughs) But he clearly tried to be a good father, and um, and you know he was struggling. Yeah, I was just looking up some different stats from possibly a different source. It yeah. says UK church membership has declined from ten point six million in nineteen thirty to five point five million in twenty ten, wow. or as a percentage of the population from about thirty percent to eleven point two percent. By 2013, this had declined further to 5.4 million, which is 10.3%. If current trends continue, membership will fall to 8.4% of the population by 2025. In England, membership is forecast to decline from 2.53 million, 4.3% of the population by 2025. Less than one out of every 10 people. Yeah. That's just astounding. I don't think that the stats that, you know, people identifying as Christians, if we go by actual church attendance, which, you know, devout Christians typically go to church, I would say there has been a significant decline. Yeah. So, eh, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) 
it's it's just you know it it's so important that we focus on our faith we focus on on who we serve and we raise our children to to do likewise especially in this increasingly secular world yeah and well christopher robin you know he he was uh struggling with not having a childhood experience with his parents that he could that he could draw upon and he didn't seem to know how to treat madeline it was like this you know he was just training her for school basically to send her away to school yeah actually that was one of the things that that it was so quick in the movie but it stood out to me was that uh the scene where christopher robin is being dropped off as a 10 year old at the boarding school Mm -hmm. his parents are standing just outside the door of the car and they shove him up this exceedingly long walk through the big gates up to the big boarding school and you can see in the in the courtyard there are plenty of families with uh, adults and children hugging and and taking their children off because sending sending your kids off to boarding school is not necessarily a bad thing and Christopher Robin even mentions it that it that it helps prepare them for the world yeah. but well, I went to boarding school so I could tell you it does <laughs> But yeah, it's how his parents uh, did it. And it clearly, or rather, I felt like that it was pinning that that distancing on his father. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, his mother really didn't play into the story much at all. It's much less screen time even that his father had. It, it really comes down to the impact that Christopher Robin's uh, parents raising him had on him. And reminds us, you know, Proverbs twenty two six. Start a youth out on his way, and even when he grows old, he will not depart from it. And that that particular version is from the CSB. Mm-hmm. It really does have an impact on how your children, how you're raised, uh, and how you raise your children. Mm-hmm. But uh, Christopher Robin really he his cluelessness really does come through. I noticed. When he first walked in the door, he said, I'm sorry, I got held up at work. But when he said he can't go to the cottage, uh, when he had already established that he, uh, in, a, in a previous scene, that he'd promised to go to the cottage with his wife and daughter, um, it took him forever to say, I'm mm-hmm. sorry, I can't go. Yeah. And I don't know, maybe that was a cultural thing uh, for the time. Because the man of the house was the man of the house, and the man of the house did not explain his decisions. Yeah. Or it could just be a deepening of the character and the fact that he truly did not want to break that promise, and he had no idea how to communicate that he was breaking that promise. And it added depth to his character that he delayed it as long as he could, trying to find some way to soften the blow, maybe. Mm. Yeah, I could definitely see that. For me, Christopher Robin's character just kept reminding me of uh, a couple things. Um, there's a devotional that I've used in the past called uh, The Measure of a Man by Gene Getz that has um, really helped me understand what a godly man is. And mm-hmm. uh, that ties into the church officer's training and uh, the requirements for elder and deacon in particular, um, Paul is explaining it in in First Timothy three, two through four, where he says, "An overseer therefore must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, self-controlled, 
sensible, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not an excessive drinker, not a bully, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not greedy. He must manage his own household competently and have his children under control with all dignity. And I feel like Christopher Robin was, you know, reaching for that standard. And I think probably the majority of fathers do. I think Mm -hmm. that standard is, is the ideal that even non-Christian fathers strive for, uh, at least in more traditional households. Yeah. And those are an extinct species. (laughs) They know... We know it's important uh, intuitively, but Christopher Robin comes to realize that he he must be going about it the wrong way somehow. Mm-hmm. When Pooh calls him a hero, he says, I'm not a hero, Pooh, I'm lost. So he knows he's doing something wrong, and, and I really appreciated, appreciated that. But, um, mm-hmm. you know, it... The seeing Christopher Robin got me wondering about the movie reused a slew of uh, themes and pithy sayings from Winnie the Pooh, <laughs> which all are, you know, both deep and empty <laughs> at the same at the time. Same time yeah. yeah. And uh, that got me wondering about uh, a book I had heard about but never read, The Tao of Pooh. And uh, it it turned out to only be a two and a half hour audible book, so I I snagged it and and I've listened to it the last couple of days on while walking the dogs and driving to and from work, and that actually got me thinking about the common grace of God and how all of humanity has we all see certain things, mm-hmm. regardless of whether or not we are believers. Um, Romans 2, 4, uh, and 14 and 15 goes, uh, Or do you desire the riches of his kindness, restraint, and patience, not recognizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? And then jumping to 14. So when Gentiles, who do not by nature have the law, do what the law demands, They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on our hearts. Their consciousness confirms this. Their competing thoughts either accuse or even excuse them. And when compared to uh, how the Tao Pooh, you know, used all of the sayings of Pooh from the stories of Winnie the Pooh, and mm-hmm. converts it into Taoism. It, it made me think of how the world religions all have elements of common grace in them, or most of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, the flying spaghetti monster probably doesn't. <laughs> but they, you know, they all have elements of the truth in them. They're just not quite there. You know, they're missing the repentance. They're missing the need for salvation and. Mm-hmm. You know, the entire movie, and this really is going to be a spoiler, <laughs> the entire movie hinges around something Pooh says early on, that uh, doing nothing often leads to the very best of something. In the Tao of Pooh, you know, the, the author just snags on to that as, as a true Taoism. 
And really, very passive. <laughs> it, it, it all comes to a quiet, meditative mind mm-hmm. that should be focused on God. Yeah, a lot of those Eastern things, they dwell so much on meditation and they meditate on nothing because like the whole point of yoga is like to empty your mind yeah. and all that kind of stuff. And it's like the problem is, is is that you open yourself up to all kinds of horrible influences when you do that. You should be filling your mind with God, not just trying to make it blank. Meditation should be and, about prayer, meditating on yeah, God. The word of God. On yeah. need for forgiveness and mm-hmm. God's grace and his... It's like the story in the scripture, and I have to look up the reference the, of the, the demon, the man who gets the demon cast out, and he doesn't doesn't fill that hole with God. And so the, the demon moves in, moves yeah. back in with a whole bunch of host of others, you know, and you don't clean your house out in order to not fill it. You have to fill it with something important to you and like God, you know, obviously, or something inimical will come in and mess it up. So yeah, you can't have a vacuum in your spiritual life. Yeah. There has to, you, you have to fill it with God. You know, the consciousness confirms that something is missing. Right. Yeah. Well, and you know, the, like you said, they, they seem like very deep sayings, but in, in the end, they actually are very empty. Yeah. You know, it's like the other one that, that popped out to me was there were a couple people say nothing is impossible, but I do nothing every day. I love that and one. <laughs> it says, I always get to where I'm going by walking away from where I've been. They're very purposeless there's no you know it's like doing nothing every day yeah Yeah. well you know where would you get nowhere (laughs) nowhere and if you're not going you know if you're not intentionally going somewhere you're not going to get anywhere so yeah i mean it's just one of those situations where they seem like they're very deep but there really is no philosophical value to anything that Pooh says. Well, you know what? That's uh, that's like the stream that Eeyore is floating down. It was so deep for yeah. a young Christopher Robin, but now mm-hmm. that he's mature, it's shin deep. Yeah. And I don't know. I think that's just one of the things that goes with perspective. It's like, yeah. he, you know, like the whole movie has to do with perspective is like, the things he says could be of value if you have the proper perspective on them. But if you just take them at face value, they're pointless. So, you know, take it for what it is. Yeah. Pooh is very literal. I mean, that's his character. Yep. And just like he's very literal and, and rabbits very busy and piglets very anxious. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they all have, you know, a certain aspect and you can't just choose one and say, this is the way we should be. You have to, take them as a whole and Pooh is just one part of the whole and so that that literal way of looking at life is is not necessarily we're not saying that you should look at life like Pooh does (laughs) (laughs) Uh, which brings a really fascinating little story to close this up when when I first started working uh, where I work now we had a like a employee get together and each of the departments did a where it was supposed to engage in some kind of entertainment for the rest of the group. <laughs> and we all took t- turns. Well, we came up with the really grand idea of doing a Winnie the Pooh skit in our department. <laughs> and so we made our boss, Christopher Robin, and I was the rabbit. And um, busy, busy, busy rabbit. Mm-hmm. And then we had two others that were Kanga and Rue. And um, and then we had uh, Piglet and... 
And some of the people that were in that skit, and this was probably almost 20 years ago, are still, I still work with. So <laughs> I, my my boss is still the same. So I was, when, when I went to see the movie, I kept seeing my boss as Christopher Robin. So it was just kind of fun to, to put everybody in their role and the, to remember that I was rabbit. You just like have that busy, you know, rabbit in the, in, you know, really kangaroo and rabbit were I mean, they were they stayed behind when the rest of the group went on their expedition. Yeah. So we didn't. Well, get, Kango, didn't get as much. I mean, Kanga's characteristic, her defining characteristic, was her, her being maternal, right? Right. And uh, Rue's defining characteristic was being not infantile, but um, a child. Uh, yeah, childish. <laughs> yeah. So they didn't really fit into the story. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, but the, you would see that Kango would fit well with Evelyn, so that when once Evelyn joined them in the oh yeah in the Hundred Acre Wood, that that was you know the kind of to get the mother figure back in there. Yeah. So. Let me ask one last question about the perspective issue. Did you feel at any time, like maybe up to maybe two thirds during through the movie, that they could have gone either way with? Other people seeing seeing them the moving whether they were uh, really moving and and characters or Christopher Robin having completely had a mental break. (laughs) Yeah, or or the fact that they were all treating them like they were actually interacting characters, but they were really lugging around stuffed animals. I don't know. That was an interesting twist. I know there were a lot of people that were concerned about how that was going to be dealt with in the movie and. You know, the way it was done, it didn't bother me. But at the same time, it would have been fascinating with it being, you know, because in the stories, I always felt like the Hundred Acre Wood was Christopher Robin's fantasy world. Yeah, me too. You know, and the the characters in it were his imaginary friends, you know, that he was laying out picnics with his little stuffed animals. animals Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, So I, I don't know that it really necessarily worked, but... I, it didn't bother me in the movie for some reason. I always pictured, you know, each of the stuffed animals, and this is from my earliest memories. I always pictured each of the stuffed animals being a gift from his father when he returns from his business travels. You know, Kanga and Rue from when his father had to go to Australia for business, and mm-hmm. Tigger from when his father had to go to India for business. They're all British Empire things. Mm hmm. So, yeah. Um, although Eeyore, you know, I, for some reason, I always just associated him with Don, Don Quixote. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, a child's imagination is an amazing yeah. thing. And I remember thinking when, when I was little, you know, all the little stories that I would dream up and, and my imaginary friends that I didn't really expect anybody else to see or know were there. They were my friends and I, I think that the idea of losing your childhood, losing sight of your childhood and having your childhood come and rescue you is kind of interesting. But at the same time, like I said, it didn't bother me in the movie. There was no suspension of disbelief there. Mm-hmm. I Or no problem with the suspension of disbelief. Let's put that no way. No need for it. Yeah. There was no need for it. It, it just it just worked. The movie worked. So it didn't bug me. But I, I think that there would have been value if I don't know that it would have been valuable that he was losing his mind. But 
I think there would have been some value in that they weren't actually moving, talking characters, that they were still stuffed animals would have been. Funny. If they had gone the losing his mind route, it would have turned dark, very, very dark, very quickly. Dark. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, it, it worked for me. The story worked. And I, in a level of ridiculousness that that kind of story needed in order to come to its climax. And so it, it didn't bother yeah. me. And I don't know. I just think that we all need a little bit of fantasy and a little bit of imagination in our lives. And so, you know, I think it worked. Yeah, I agree. It was the fantasy and the imagination that saved him. So, you know, it was nice that it was real. Yeah. it's. I, I think this movie had a really nice balance of deep themes and childlike imagination. It, mm -hmm. it really was well balanced. Um, it wasn't, you know, a really, it wasn't a great happy movie, but it was, a, <laughs> it was a, it was entertaining. A, it was an artistic experience that, that was very entertaining. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think that's a good way to put it. An artistic experience that was entertaining. And there was a little bit of philosophy in there, you know, the whole, yeah, the whole perspective thing. So, I mean, it, it hit all its bases and I think it was fun and worth watching and I think we can recommend it if people are into that kind of movie. And we would definitely like to know what everybody else thinks. You can comment on the show notes, which will be at areyoujustwatching.com slash 84. You can call us at 903-231-2221 and leave us a voicemail. You can email us feedback at areyoujustwatching.com and you can send us audio files if you want. You can join our Facebook discussion group. Just go on to Facebook and look for... Are you just watching? There's a page in a group. Um, like the page. Join the group. <laughs> <laughs> you can subscribe, write, and review us in iTunes. And I believe that Google is now starting up a new podcasting media. So really? I'm sure that we'll, we'll work our way into that as well. I've been hearing about that. And I hadn't seen uh, I'm yet. sure that, yeah, I'm sure that it our podcast will be available through there. So if you want to do the Google route instead of the Apple route, I'm sure you'll be able to find us. Mm -hmm. um, you can follow me on Twitter at Eve Franklin. And you can follow me on Twitter at Rencheple, R-E-N-C-H-E-P-L-E. And we don't want to forget our supporters. We're very grateful to Amanda, John, Craig, Hardy, Richard French, and Stephen Brown II for their monthly support. We Thank you. strongly encourage you to go to patreon.com slash are you just watching and consider a small monthly gift to keep us, our podcast going. We really appreciate those who are, are giving a gift, no matter how small, um, to keep us running. And this is so useful to us. <laughs> Yeah. And I think we haven't necessarily decided what we're doing next month. So it, you can always send us suggestions. We're open to anything that's out on DVD. Within reason, we try to not do anything rated R. Yep. And uh, we are and anything coming into the movie theaters as well. Yeah, we should have this posted by on. Labor Day. So. And join us and let us know how we did. And. Uh, I do want to thank those who engaged us after the red pill discussion. Um, we did have a little bit of a discussion on our page yeah. about that. Thank you. Yeah. And thank you so much for continuing to listen to this podcast. We are uh, well into our ninth year. We'll be 10, 10 next year, I believe. So we've been, I've been doing the podcast a while. Yeah, I've been, Tim hasn't been doing it. 
I'm going on three years, three years? now, aren't I? Yeah, yeah. So we really appreciate those who have stuck with us through all of this and uh, and hopefully we'll continue to bring the podcast to you in time to come. So thank you so much. I'm Eve Franklin. I'm Tim Martin. And don't just watch. Are You Just Watching is a proud member of Noodle Mix Network. Subscribe to more of our podcasts to make you think, laugh, and succeed at noodlemix.net.